On this episode, I am joined by Logan from Theme Park Shuffle to chat with Drew Hunter, Vice President of Creative Design at Sally Dark Rides and the King of Haunts. Today is October 31st, 2023, and this is episode 613 of the Main Street Magic Podcast. Jeremy and Rhonda are more than a little fond of Disney World, so they made this podcast to share it all with you. Reports and resorts, top ten lists of all sorts, Main Street Magic's bringing it home for you. Hello and welcome to another episode of Main Street Magic. I am your host, Jeremy Stein, and while I am not joined by my lovely wife, Rhonda, today, I will soon be joined by my lovely co-host at Theme Park Shuffle, Logan Zawaki. Make sure you check us out on the web at MainSTMagic.com, as well as follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at MainSTMagic. If you've not done so already, head out to Facebook and search for the Main Street Magic community and ask to join. Then if you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, you're going to get brand new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. If you're planning a trip to Disneyland or Walt Disney World, it can be overwhelming and at times downright frustrating. But don't worry because Mouse Dining removes the frustration of booking Disney dining reservations, alerting you when they spot availability for your desired restaurant, date, meal, and time. This also works for dining packages such as Candlelight Processional, fireworks packages, and a whole lot more. Head to msmfriends.com to use this free service. And speaking of booking, if you're looking to book that 2024 Walt Disney World trip or beyond, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Universal, pretty much anywhere else in the entire world, you want to go ahead and get a quote from Chuck or Amy with Main Street Magic Travel at mainstmagictravel.com. Our travel services are 100% completely free to you. Happy Halloween, everyone. Today is going to be a little bit different. So Logan and I sat down with Drew Hunter, who is the vice president of creative design at Sally Dark Rides, and he is the king of haunts, to discuss with him what inspired him to get into the themed entertainment industry as a very, very young child, all the way through high school, into college, in his first job before ultimately landing a career at Sally Dark Rides in Jacksonville, Florida, which he has been at for the past 26 years. Now, we sat down and did this for Theme Park Shuffle, and I highly suggest you go and subscribe, but I thought this was such an incredible conversation that I wanted to share it with the Main Street Magic world. So, it being Halloween, and as you will hear, Drew being the king of haunts, this is such a cool episode to come out today. I can't wait for y'all to hear it. So, I'm going to go ahead and play the episode now. I truly hope that you enjoy. Welcome to the Theme Park Shuffle. Boy, do we have a special episode for you this time. Our our Halloween special is unique in that we are shuffling not a ride, not a land, nothing that you're used to. We are, in fact, doing a host shuffle today. So with me, Logan Zwaki, is our usual ace of hosts, Mr. Jeremy Stein. Hello, everyone. But, but our big surprise with this episode is instead of David, today we are joined by the VP of Creative Services at Sally Dark Rides, Mr. Drew Hunter. Drew, welcome to the Theme Park Shuffle. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Oh, no, it's it's an honor to have you here, Drew. Um, this is something that I've been wanting to do for a long time, especially ever since me and Jeremy interviewed you for what episode was it, Jeremy, of Mainstream Magic? Episode 90, way back in 2018, which was, <clears throat> honestly, we've done over 600 episodes now for Mainstream Magic, and it is easily top five, my favorite episodes. It was just unbelievable and super fascinating. That was another lifetime ago. Yes, yes, <laughs> That's what it feels like. But the crazy part is it feels like it was just yesterday that we were all together recording that podcast. Um, and so for for this episode, obviously, this is one that's going to be coming out around the Halloween time, sort of October theme. What I also wanted to focus on with this one is instead of us doing some kind of challenge where we're re-theming or redesigning something, uh, this time we're going to actually focus on our guest hosts. And in this case... We're going to focus on Drew. Uh, we'll call this the theme park career shuffle episode because this is one where we're really going to dive deep into uh, Drew's amazing story and what led him to the job he's currently in at Sally Dark Rides. And um, also, 
I, I to, Drew's a mentor of mine and we go to lunch once every week. And so I get to hear all this on the regular. And so Drew is somebody who I'm constantly, he's like my mentor and a part-time psychologist, you know, just listening to me babble and vent and, and just talk about future and what I envision. And he's so supportive. And for, for this episode, I, 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 so often talk with college students about their careers and they have it in their mind that they're going to get into the themed entertainment industry right out of college and then that's going to be their entire life and that the reality is most people's career paths are not a linear line it's not you get in and you stay in one spot for the rest of your career many of us take different paths. Many of us go in directions that are completely out of our control with other than the fact that we are making the choice to move on to something new. Um, and Drew's career path, as you guys will hear, is one of those where it's just a, a miraculous set of events that are triggered one after another after another. And why Drew is so perfect for a Halloween episode is because this is the king of haunts. This is the king of haunted attractions. He's done walkthroughs. He's done Fright Fest. He's done it all. And uh, it's great to have him here today to share all this with you. So I, I've just, I feel like I've rambled on now for several minutes. Drew, well, welcome great. to the show. I'll send you the $500 for all that introduction. And <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's start, Drew, since, um, since obviously I've, I've done all this rambling on now about your career, let's sort of start with what got you inspired to even enter what we consider the themed entertainment industry? What, right. what was it from either childhood or teen teenage years or what, what kind of were the early inspirations for you? It's, it's always good to go back and uh, retrace steps. Because by doing that, you kind of you kind of figure out who you are and who you've become and and why and why, why you've become the person you are and why you follow the career paths you have. It's very important uh, and as a let's just call it an older person, <laughs> which I'm very proud of. I'm happy to have been here this long. It's it's very important to to really examine how you became who you are. It's, it's very healthy to do that. So with my situation, probably began when I was uh, maybe two years old, when my grandfather took me to see Walt Disney's Fantasia, the 1940 animated classic. I don't remember that, but it obviously ingrained in my essence and my soul, the love of color, of storytelling, of design, and of uh, fantasy. Then my, my mom took me to it on a re-release in about 1957, 58. That I remember vividly, and it changed my life. Seeing that movie changed my life. And all of those things, the storytelling, the color, the all, all the fantasy, all the elements that are in that film helped sculpt the person that I am today. I will always owe it to that film. I mean, Disney has done many, many fabulous movies, but that was the one that really sparked my soul. And in fact, uh, on that second viewing in about 1957-58 after I saw the film I didn't know what all the music was but I knew I wanted that music I wanted to have it so I asked my mom and my dad for my birthday coming up my birthday is in uh, in October October 27th and and I asked them can I have that music for my birthday my mom went to a local record shop you know back in those days there were record shops and 
old, old LPs, and you could sit and listen to them if you wanted to. But there's a little lady at the Broadmoor Music Record Shop in Shreveport, Louisiana, named Mrs. Ahern. And Mrs. Ahern worked with my mom and found the albums, the old albums, of much of the music from Fantasia, which she brought home to me for my birthday. My grandfather gave me a little bitty record player, and I would sit in my room for years after that and play the music and relive what I saw on the screen. Now, in combination with that, my, um, my parents took me to Disneyland three years after it opened in 1958. It opened in 55. I went in 58 for the first time. Going on, Mr. Toad, Peter Pan, and Snow White, I came out of that going, I, this is what I want to do. This is, this is the most fun thing I've ever been on. I mean, I grew up in Louisiana, Northwest Louisiana, and, you know, wasn't a hard sell to find something interesting at this Disneyland. <laughs> and, and uh, I mean, you know, I came home and planted a palm tree. I went to a nursery in Freeport with my grandmother, and I spent my allowance on a palm tree because they had palm trees in Southern California. That's what a big impact it had, that whole trip. Uh, and uh, by the way, that palm tree, actually the son of that palm tree, is still there in Shreveport, Louisiana, at the old house that I grew up in. But that's all to say that these things helped construct the person that I became and am, uh, which which I will never, and, not, and one other element of all this, this recipe is my parents. My parents being absolutely supportive until the day they passed away of everything I did, everything I imagined, all the strange plays I did, plays I wrote and directed, the strange art I did, the haunted houses I did, all of this stuff, all they said was, hey, as long as you're making money with it and having fun, you know, it's hey, your life. And uh, you, you can't you can't put a price on that. Yeah. Amen. That's actually that's that's a pretty good segue there too, Drew, as far as um, sort of moving into the, the next big phase of, of your life and your passions, which sort of transitions into your your involvement in in theater and how right. you started working on that so kind of um briefly talk to us a little bit about how you got started in that what kind of kindled that fire in you for a performance and not only that but then also the writing and the stage design and the stage fabrication as it all sort of came along okay um <clears throat> again in about 1958 i believe there was a new theater built, a beautiful theater, built in my hometown at the local college. And the initial premiere production was The King and I, the musical. My mom asked me and my best friend, I was in the uh, you know, second or third grade, if we'd like to try out for that. So I did, I went and tried out and became one of the King's kids. If you know The King and I, the musical, the king has 60-something children, and in the production, there is as many kids as they could be, as they could have on stage. So I was one of, I don't know, 30 or 40 children who played the, the king's children, the king, one of the king's kids. So being in the theater realm uh, in a beautiful production of that play was a huge, again, another turning point. Now, before that, before that, I had been in uh, a production in my kindergarten some years before of a play called The Giant's Garden. Now, I remember that kind of pretty well because I remember I wanted to be the giant. I wanted to play the giant. Well, I didn't get cast as a giant. I got cast, okay, as a pansy in The Giant Garden, okay? So if I ever write my autobiography. My autobiography title is going to be, I was a pansy in the giant's garden. <laughs> right? so, <laughs> and so it all began. It, it, it I love started, it. you know, and it has, <laughs> so anyway, so the King and I 
It was a wonderful experience. After that, my parents put me in creative dramatics with a lady in Shreveport, Louisiana, who taught creative dramatics for children. And then I began doing plays uh, all the way through high school, junior high, junior high, high school, and then eventually in community theater uh, for many, many years and did um, uh, not only acting and performing, but eventually writing, designing sets for children's theater, adult theater, all kind of theater and directing. So that was a, uh, that was a, the, the singular most creative part of my life so far was, was doing all that because it's community theater. You had nothing really to work with. So you had to be insanely inventive. And it also taught me how to work with people because they're not being paid. They're doing it for the fun of it. So you had to really uh, know some psychology and be able to work with people to get the, to get the performances, to get the set building done, the lighting done, all the things that had to be done in a theater done. So it was invaluable in that regard. That's awesome. And so at that point, you're working in Shreveport. You, um, at that point, is that when uh, college came around and then you moved away for college? Well, yeah, I, I uh, no, I went, to, I went to college in the same town, uh, a college called Centenary College. It's still there. Centenary College of Louisiana. It's a very small school. The entire school population in 19, I mean, I graduated in 1971. And the, I think the entire school uh, attendance at that time was about maybe 1,200 students. So it was a small school. It was a Methodist a Methodist school. I'm not Methodist, but this Methodist sponsored the school and, and uh, did theater uh, there. While I was in school, uh, this is an interesting kind of sidelight that also helped me in my career. I was cast by a local TV station, an ABC affiliate in the Northwest Louisiana East Texas, Southwest Oklahoma, Southeast uh, Arkansas area, pretty large market as Bozo the Clown. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. Uh, I had the, the guy that ran the TV station, the manager of the TV station, maybe from, because his, his, his kids had been in the Boy Scout troop with me. And I used to tell ghost stories around the campfire. Can you imagine that? And uh, he said, man, you'd be great as Bozo the Clown. You scared the hell out of me with those ghost stories. And I went, well, wait a minute. You don't want to. Yeah. Oh, Is that what we're going for with Bozo? To scare the hell out of kids? You work, you work well with the kids. And so, <laughs> so anyway, I became Bozo the Clown for uh, the, the official Bozo the Clown for that area. For I mean, there are Bozos all over the country. Every, every major TV market had a Bozo uh, big top show. That they did locally, and um, so that that was excellent. That was a that was a fun time that taught me so much. It taught me how to get up in front of people and talk, being basically unprepared. It made me realize that it's okay to make a complete and utter fool of myself, <laughs> and um, it's okay. It's all right. Uh, so that that was a that was another major element in my in my ability to to um uh uh perform and not but most importantly work with people and and, ch and kids i don't have any kids personally but i i adore children I, do, I don't want to bring them home with me but you know i don't want them but uh they they're a fabulous we, we need children and i love i love my work i have done in children's theater uh, and the ability to entertain children and to uh, and to uh, see see them they're not children they're just little they're just smaller adults <laughs> yeah. and so that that was a great great turning point in my career and so at, at what point did dr blood come along oh dr blood the dear dr blood the diabolical dr blood the insidious dr blood 
Dr. Blood happened when I was at a theater group in Shreveport uh, called Gaslight Players. Now, Gaslight Players had a uh, theater on the state fairgrounds. Every, we did melodramas, old-fashioned melodramas every summer. And uh, people would sit at cabaret tables and throw popcorn and actually throw popcorn at the actors if they didn't. Oh, and uh, eat hot dogs and drink beer and so on and yell at the actors. And it was great, great fun. Well, <laughs> Somehow or another, I became president of that theater group, and we began doing all these strange things. And they, at the state fair, the state fair in Louisiana was in Shreveport, and uh, this is on the fair, fairgrounds. And the fair uh, asked that we do something every year at the theater during the fair in October. So we did, for several years, we did uh, old-fashioned melodramas, a little short melodrama. Nobody went to see it. Nobody cared. And I said, I went to the board of directors and I said, listen, let's, let's do a, a very theatrical haunted attraction. Let's do a really scary toured, a tour individual toured theater group, a, a haunted attraction. Now, today, there are haunted attractions across the map. Every city has all kinds of haunted attractions. Back then, in 1970, this is 1975, there were, the JCs did a haunted houses that were, you know, kind of sad, but there weren't the big official professional haunts like you see now. There was no, there was no Halloween Horror Nights. There was no Fright Fests. Nothing like that existed back in those days. And so we, we were, we were quite a hit. We opened in 1975 and I was involved with that until 1985, through 1985. Dr. Wow. Blood, Dr. Blood because uh, I said somebody needs to be a spokesperson or a spokesperson for this for this show, and uh, I knew how to do it. I was handling all the media for it and writing, you know, uh, media releases for the for the for the production. So I said, okay, I'll care about this character called Doctor Blood, and I chose the name Doctor Blood not because it was original but because it was memorable. People could easily remember that name. And instantly, Dr. Blood took off. And Dr. Blood went and did uh, pumpkin carving contests and costume contests. And it made a little appearances everywhere for all those years. So that particular production of 10 days during the Louisiana State Fair paid for the entire next season to operate. Wow. It made tons of money. And that was a tour show. It wasn't a wasn't a walk in and you snake through the whole show and so on. No, this is a every group of twenty people would be individually toured to these shows. So we didn't have a big throughput. But we had a quality show. That's amazing. And that was fun. So that's how Dr. Blood came about. And you did that for 10 years. Now, did Dr. Blood always have the same iconic mask or did, did you change it up like every year? Dr. Blood had uh, a mask. It had one eye. That was inspired by the 1961 Hammer Productions movie of Phantom of the Opera, which isn't a particularly great film or a version of the Phantom of the Opera, but I love the mask. Uh, and I kind of, it was my mask was inspired by that. Now, over the years, <clears throat> Dr. Bud's mask did change. I still have, by the way, the original Dr. Bud mask. <laughs> now, is, I, the, is the original I, one the sort of glass inlaid version? No, that was later on. Okay. Later on, but it had uh, mirror shards yes. all over it. Awesome. That was later, much later on. But Dr. Bud went from Shreveport to the Dallas Fort Worth area. I did one show in Fort Worth, then went to um, uh, no went to went to went from Shreveport to the Wax Museum in, in Grand Prairie, Texas, in between Dallas and Fort Worth, and we did the Doctor Blood show there uh, for a number of years, very successfully at the Wax Museum. Then went to Fort Worth for one year for one show, and then went to Six Flags Over Texas for Fright Fest for several years. 
And so were the, the, the earliest Fright Fest or had they already done a couple? One of the one of the first Fright Fest wasn't the, the first Fright Fest, but it was one of the first Fright Fests at Six Flags Over Texas. And then Dr. Bug was also the host uh, for the Fright Fest up at Six Flags St. Louis in 19, 1993. That's you know, 30 years ago. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's gracious. incredible. That's incredible, Drew. And so as the Dr. Blood sort of took you to the Dallas Fort Worth area and introduced you to a wax museum, is that the wax museum that you ended up moving to and taking the job at? Yes. Yes. It was called the Wax Museum of the Southwest in between Dallas and Fort Worth on Interstate 30. It is now Louis Tussauds Palace of Wax, um, which Ripley's Entertainment owns. There's also a Ripley's in the museum. Now, the very, very Cliff Notes version of that is I went to work there in 1985 as creative director of the Wax Museum, which was for Drew a job made in heaven. I mean, come on, working in a wax museum. How freaking cool is that? So I, I did that. But then in 1988, the wax museum burned to the ground. Uh, on September 9th, 1988, it burned to the ground. So we were dark for a year, but built back. And in 19, the fall of 1989, we had our first... Uh, 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 haunted uh, house at the Wax Museum again. And I was there until through 1991. 1991. Okay. So that was the Wax Museum, yes. So that's, now let's talk about that a little bit. So here you are, you're working at this Wax Museum. You've moved away from Louisiana. You've started this whole new life here. And then the place burns down. How yeah. how do you bounce back from that, Drew? How, did, how like what what was going on in your mind with your career and everything you've been working so hard for and creating this new life just to literally watch it go up in flames? Well, that's true. It's, it's that's exactly what ha happened. And and uh, uh, you know when I moved to Dallas, uh, when I moved to Dallas in 1985. 1985, moved to Dallas. Uh, I had no prospects. I had zero prospects. And I knew about the Wax Museum, but I'd never been to it. So my, my partner and I went out to uh, the Wax Museum uh, one Saturday. I looked around. I'm like, you know, this isn't half bad. It's not the, not the real tourist trap that I thought it would be. It's actually pretty cool. And it was it over 300 wax figures on display. It was huge. I called them the next Monday because I knew they did a Halloween deal. And they said, um, and I said, you know, hey, I, I, I wasn't looking for a job necessarily, but I said, I want to help you out with your Halloween deal. Well, that led to, long story, but that led to my being hired as creative director at the Wax Museum in the summer of 1985. So then watching this place burn down, I was one of the two people who discovered the fire on that Friday afternoon of September 9th, 1988. I did. I watched my office burn up. I just moved my office to a part of the building where you could see in through the windows and I watched everything burn up. Everything burned down. The roof caved in. Uh, the Eventually, when they cleared off the slab, we went through and picked up glass eyeballs from the wax figures. That's all that so, was left, huh? That's all, that's all you could repurpose? That was all that was left. Yeah, there was nothing left, and there were countless antiques, a million-dollar gun collection, um, all kind of beautiful uh, motorized and horse-driven, uh, horse-pulled uh, uh, purses inside, all kind of stuff, all gone, all gone. But we revived and. Um, Came up from the, they scraped the slab of the museum clean and built, we built a new one. Wow. <clears throat> so yeah, that was a, uh, that was a traumatic and strange, strange event that um, 
I'm sure not a lot of people have lived through, but uh, it was it was interesting. But we did it. Yeah. So so now, just as a, a quick recount, we've got it to where we have inspirations from childhood with Fantasia and early visits to the parks, moving on into theater and the influence of theater and stage creation, storytelling, working with teams, collaborative thinking, and uh, inspiring those who are literally volunteers. Mm -hmm. um, then taking a big gamble, moving out to the Dallas-Fort Worth area without a job and just going to this wax museum because it's something you wanted to check out and you thought, saw it as an opportunity with Halloween coming up, proposing, doing an actual Halloween event, helping them out with that. That segues into a career at this wax museum where you're then using all of the skills you've gained so far from your years of art and your background in fine arts throughout your whole life, as well as all the stuff you've learned in theater. And of course, your love and passion for all things uh, Disney and uh, theme parks, tying that together. Now, at what point were you in your own mind saying, I think I want to do a dark ride? <laughs> well, that was never far from my thoughts. <clears throat> in the same summer that I went to Disneyland with my parents in 1958, the first, the first time, that same summer, another amusement park opened on a pier in the Santa Monica, Venice Beach area of Southern California, where my grandparents lived, my dad's parents lived out there. We went to see them every now and then. This park was called Pacific Ocean Park, and if your if your if your listeners are not familiar with that, look up Pacific Ocean Park. It was on the old Ocean Park Pier that had been there for decades, and because of the success of Disneyland, uh, I believe CBS, uh, ABC had invested in 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 Disneyland, as you know, but CBS, I believe invested in Pacific Ocean Park and turned it, <clears throat> they closed the, they closed the piers and the old pier, the old amusement piers, the rides and coasters and so on, and built this mid-century modern amusement park called Pacific Ocean Park, refurbished many of the old rides, added some new ones, many of them ocean Pacific themed, obviously, some not. But my dad took me to that in 1958 for the first time. That, again, was a pivotal moment of my life because at the end of the pier was a ride. And if you look this up, if you look up Pacific Ocean Park, a.k.a. P.O.P., you will see that there at the end of the pier was a volcano ride called Mystery Island. Got on a little banana train, went through a little jungle on the end of the pier, then up and into a volcano. There was a vertigo tunnel. There was erupting uh, lava. There was all kinds of special effects. That absolutely made a lasting impact on me, which, looking ahead, decades and decades later, was a major influence in our Vulcanu the quest for the Golden Idol ride that uh, we did two years ago for uh, Lost Island Theme Park. That Pacific Ocean Park Mystery Island ride was kind of what I call the kind of beginning of my, that and the Disney, Disney rides, the beginning of my dark ride obsession. And then doing the ride at Lost Island in Waterloo, Iowa the new park that just opened uh, two years ago and doing the Volcano ride was kind of made it a full circle. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. You got to love that. And so I know you were heavily involved in, in the arts and always drawing and creating throughout your whole life. Uh, do you 
do you have drawings that uh, you know your parents kept and saved, or that you even saved yourself of very early crude versions of rides that you imagined as a child? Uh, you know, after visiting these parks, did you come back and create your own rides because you were just so inspired by what you saw and experienced? Yeah. Not so much rides, but I do have a sketch, a little sketch that I did from the uh, just north. We were on the beach just north of um, Pacific Ocean Park. And I still have a sketch I did as an eight-year-old kid of the pier with the volcano at the end, the roller coaster, which terrified the absolute crap out of me. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't go on a roller coaster after that for 20 years. <laughs> the old old wooden roller coaster called the Sea Serpent. It originally was called the High Boy, but then they changed it to Sea Serpent for the Pacific Ocean Park. My dad and I, standing below that coaster, he went, that doesn't look too bad, does it, Drew? And I went, no, Daddy, that looks okay. Well, halfway up the first lift hill, and this rise going, chick, 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 you know, up this... I knew I'd made the biggest mistake of my little life. <laughs> and my dad had never been on a coaster. And he did not understand that part of the fun of a coaster is, is uh, airtime. He thought yeah. we were thrown out. So he was trying to work against physics and keep me in the seat, which scared me even more. So I'm still, I'm, I'm, I, I love studying coasters. I love ideas of coasters. Now, there's a few that I'll go on here or there, but yeah, I'm still not. I'm, you know, if I'm going <laughs> on an old and it's going clickety clack, clickety clack, clickety clack up. So I'm done. If I watched one on on the computer, a a point of view of going of a coaster, I will not so much a a, a steel coaster, but an old wooden coaster. My hands will start sweating. Oh no, you got PTSD. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun actually, but. Uh, <laughs> But um, back then it wasn't. So this is all to say that um, the uh, that I I didn't really draw so much um, rides. Uh, one other interesting thing that I'll tie back into the wax museum a little bit. When I did the and and my earlier life, when I did the the king and I, as we talked earlier, uh, after that I was so entranced with theater. My dad made me a miniature theater. He built it with a stage, a curtain that would open, a little backstage area, and I could mount my own little plays. I would make little pieces of scenery. I would get lights I'd put in there, I'd put music on, and I'd stage my little my little production. It wasn't a dark ride, but it was a theater production. Mm -hmm. and, and I had that for years. Well, when I moved to Dallas, I took that with me, and I stored it in the back of the wax museum. Oh. So when the wax museum went up in flames, that, as well as all of my Aurora, original Aurora plastic monster model kits, <laughs> went up in flames. Yeah. But hey, they went up in flames of a burning wax museum. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yes. Without a doubt. <laughs> so, now, so now it's 1991. Mm -hmm. you're, you're you're leaving the wax yep. museum yep and so what what at this point was the catalyst that that made you leave the wax museum in the dallas fort worth area well first of all the wax museum and all the people involved were fabulous to work with bill phillips and his team uh bill became one of my very very dearest friends he's no longer with us his son is bill uh davis phillips one of my one of my close friends and a fabulous professional. Um, but Chuck and I decided that uh, my partner decided that um, it was time to try it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we went into business for ourselves. We started a company called Vorta Inc. Vorta Incorporated, V-O-R-T-A. And we left into that with absolutely nothing behind us. No financing, no parachute, no nothing. We just started. We said, well, why not? We didn't know any better. 
And we did that. We did that un until 1997 when I moved to uh, 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 Florida to come to work at Sally. But we did, we focused on haunted attractions. We worked with many of the Six Flags theme parks for Fright Fests. We designed other haunted attractions for uh, personal, from, from, you know, individual folks and did other art, art related projects. So after 1991, that's what we did. We had our own little company for a while. Now, how did you find your niche in haunted, like in this sort of this, this genre, if you will, um, mm -hmm. what really sort of drove you into that area? And is, was it seen as kind of like an opportunity where you saw there was, there was opportunity, there was business in this area and you were already a fan of it or what were there specific catalysts that drove you to pursue more haunted attractions? Well, along with all the other things that we've talked about, uh, one of the things that always fascinated me was haunted houses. I'm talking about theatrical stage haunted houses, real haunted houses as well, but specifically now talking about staged amusement haunted houses. Mm -hmm. Now that began in my, in my uh, uh, grammar school, A.C. Steer in Shreveport, Louisiana, where we'd every October, mid-October, there'd be a fun night. And one of the rooms in the school, it was an old, it was a really cool old school, still there, uh, would stage a den of horrors. And they would not allow grades one through three to go through. So once I was in the fourth grade, I paid my dime and went in this den of horrors. And one of the schoolrooms, you know, turned over into, into a spook house. And I came out, I never forget this. I came out and stood in the hallway with my friends and I went, well, that was fun. I said, but you know, I think I could do better than that. <laughs> so that was kind of my impetus. And you also have to remember that back in 1991, there was really not, now you look on the internet, there's tons of companies that do haunted attractions uh, and some purport to do haunted attractions, but some do them very well. And there's haunted attractions all over the place every year. It was not like that in 1991. There were some, but nothing like it is now. So we had quite a, we had a, quite a opportunity to be able to, um, uh, uh, to make that market happen. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons that I decided to change my life and come to Sally was because after we did the Six Flags Parks for so many years, they knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. They didn't need us anymore. They were all very nice to work with. We had a great time. Had a superb experiences with them but after a while they caught on they knew what to do and there was more competition in the business my company did not build things we did not supply you know animatronic robots we did not supply stuff like that but what we did was was uh, work with the marketing departments we would come up with the stories we come up with the concepts we come up with the plans the designs all that sort of thing. Sometimes help them with that. But it was not just haunted house, it was also decor. Decor in the parks, signage, right. all sorts of stuff. Music for the parks, Halloween music, the original Halloween music for the parks. We did all that kind of stuff for many, many years. But after a while, there were so many other people doing it and the parks knew how to do it by then. So there it was time to make a change. And so prior to you starting at Sally, you had met John Wood, our, our chairman, our, one of our original three founders of Sally Dark Rides. You had met him through a, a trade organization like IAPA, or had you randomly met him just when he came by in the Wax Museum or at Six Flags? Like, how did that start? Right. Uh, in 1986... 
we opened up after I was at the Wax Museum for over a year, we opened up their first horror section called Dr. Blood. Dr. Blood was the host of it. We had a wax figure of Dr. Blood. Um, the Dr. Blood's uh, Theater of Horrors. It was a pretty extensive uh, horror section. Well, one day, this guy named John Wood showed up at the Wax Museum uh, with uh, probably one of his animatronics in the back seat of his car to talk about maybe the Wax Museum having something like that. Well, I was not in that meeting, but Bill Phillips called me and said, hey, there's a gentleman here. Would you please tour him through the museum? So I went up and I met to the lobby and I met John Wood. And I did. I gave him a tour all the way through the museum. That was 1986. And the new horror section. And we talked a little bit. And he said, man, this is a really great place. It's really nice. So I stayed in touch with John and saw him at IAPAS after that, several IAPAS. And we said, hey, maybe one of, the, one of these days we ought to work together. And John would say, yeah, well, maybe we, one, one day we will. Well, in 1996, uh, situations developed where I called John one afternoon uh, after IAPA that year and said, hey, how you doing, John? Hey, Drew, how you doing? I'm fine. I said, hey, John, do you have any um, any business, anything I might be able to help with or like a, a job or <laughs> or whatever? <laughs> anyway, well, send me your portfolio. That was in that was in early December 1996. On January 20th, 1997, I reported to work from my first day at Sally. That's how fast it happened. That's amazing. And again, all important note for any students out there listening or anybody in their career path, networking is key. Because you never know when a connection will prove to be one of the most pivotal, life-changing moments in your life. Absolute words of wisdom. And, and the other thing is, don't be shy. Mm, yeah. You've got to get out there. You've got to sell yourself. You've got to, and, it's, and yes, you're right. It is important to know people. It is important to meet people and make those connections because even if you don't if you make a connection and they they go away and you don't see them for years in this particular business they're going to come back you're going to hear about them again and they may hear about you so always always maintain those connections and never burn bridges never perfect Awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to interject for the first time because I've just been, I know I've been so quiet. <laughs> well, I've been welcome to the party, Jeremy. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I've been so fascinated by your story and I think this is a great segue from what you're saying as well. And, and for me as a parent of two teenagers, uh, hearing the support of your parents and everything that you were doing growing up, I mean, for you to at seven, eight years old to find something that you loved and then for them to support you throughout mm -hmm. your entire upbringing and career yeah. and for you to go into so many different things that would support that career. Like I sit back and I think of, you know, when I was a kid and, and everybody would say, well, what do you want to do? I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a policeman. But most people didn't do those things in the end. Right. And to see that you've created an entire career and your parents support and everything okay. is just absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. And that you touched every, facet of the theme park and dark ride and haunted industry mm -hmm. to get you where you are today is just like it's been blowing my mind this whole time that's why i've just been sitting over here staying very quiet it's it's super impressive and i think it is it, it's a lesson to not only kids growing up and things that they want to do you know and you going through a very unusual path you know, to parents and supporting their children in the things that they take interest in, um, I think is just absolutely unbelievable. Well, like just yeah, amazing. It, it it was it was pivotal. It was pivotal. And you know, the other thing I was talking with someone about this just the other day that you know, you read about some people and some people who are very notable in the in the amusement and theme park industry and de design wise who grew up in Southern California. 
and they were kind of there. They went to Disneyland all the time, or they began working at Disneyland when they were, you know, teenagers uh, and, and such. You know, I look back at my life, and I grew up in Northwest Louisiana, and in a in a middle class family. My dad was an accountant. My mom was a homemaker, basically. Uh, she had a couple of little part-time jobs, but basically a homemaker. And and when I look back at how did I how did I wrangle all that and do all that is because not only did I find a passion, several many passions of you know between theater and the dark rides and 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 movies. We haven't even talked about that. Uh, and other some other things that that came into play, but but I was so fortunate to have the parents who were so supportive because yeah. they had this weird kid, <laughs> this <laughs> angel little child who would sit in his room for the hours in that little theater I told you about and making little sets and playing music, classical music too, that that would. Uh, you know, none of their other family, none of the other people they knew had kids like that doing this weird stuff. But my parents stood by me and they said, you know, we love you and we support you and we're happy that you are finding your bliss. So that that you that is that is a remarkable thing. Well, it wouldn't be Halloween without a treat, and that is the conversation with Drew. Uh, it also wouldn't be Halloween without a trick, and that is only part one. So if you would like to get part two of our conversation with Drew Hunter, which, believe it or not, gets even better than part one, you're going to have to go out, search for Theme Park Shuffle on your favorite podcast platform, and hit that subscribe button, and you can go ahead and immediately check out part two. Thank you all so much for listening. Happy Halloween. I hope everyone will be safe tonight. You'll enjoy your treats. You'll enjoy your tricks and so much more. Uh, if you like what you hear, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you can get episodes every Tuesday and Friday. And Rhonda and I will be back this Friday with a brand new episode where we will talk about our lunch at Tusker House, all new items at Three Bridges, and a few of our favorite quick service items at both Epcot and Magic Kingdom. We return to see if they're just as good as we remembered. So again, don't forget to subscribe and get these episodes every Tuesday and Friday. And you know that Rhonda and myself, Logan, and I'm sure Drew would be super thankful if you could please leave us a rating and review because it really does help our show grow. That's all we've got. We'll see you real soon. Jeremy and Rhonda are more than a little fond of Disney World. So they made this podcast to share it all with you. Reports and resorts, top ten lists of all sorts, Main Street Magic's bringing it home for you.